Welcome to the Plant Cunning Podcast, where we explore our relationship to plants, other people, and the mysteries of nature. Coming to you from the High Allegheny Plateau in central New York, we are your hosts, A.C. Staubel and Isaac Hill. Episode 5 with Byron Ballard, the village witch of Asheville, North Carolina. We talked to Byron today about the importance of place, how to use magic as a tool, and how to befriend your local nature spirits. Enjoy. Hi, we are so excited today to have Byron Ballard on the show. Byron's a writer, a village witch, a folklorist. She's a teacher, a farmer. She sings. She's a clergy member in a goddess temple and so much more. So thank you so much, Byron. It is an honor to have you on the podcast today. Well, now I feel exhausted from all of those things. <laughs> all those identities. Do, yeah. do I really do all those things? No. Yeah. So if you want to add anything else about who you are, where you're from, just in your own words, we would love our listeners to get to know you a little bit more. The thing that I am most conscious of right now, after all these months of being in situ, I guess, is that I am a person of this place and my place is Western North Carolina and is Buncombe County specifically. And my family has been here. My family has been in this neighborhood where I live now. Um, My daughter's the fifth generation. So my great, great grandparents moved here in the late 1800s. So it feels, it feels as though I'm a part of it and it's a part of me so that I, I notice all sorts of little weird things that I think I wouldn't necessarily notice if I wasn't of the place. And I, and I notice the change in energy fields and, and in who's around and who isn't. Um, so yeah, I think the thing I would want people most to know about me is that I am, I am of this place and in this place. Mm. That's beautiful. Yeah. So you're an Appalachian person, but specifically of that area. Yeah. And it's interesting because you had mentioned that I travel a lot. Well, Appalachia is a really big region. Yeah. And I live in the Southern Highlands of Appalachia. But I remember several years back, I, uh, I landed in Pittsburgh yeah. to, do a, to do a festival with them. And, and the folks met me and they hugged my neck and kissed me and said, we are Appalachian too. And I immediately kind of did that, ah. Appalachian. Appalachian. <laughs> and, and what the traveling has done for me is to realize that I think of Appalachia as this kind of big connected place, but the reality is we are microcultures on a, on a beautiful land mass. And we're all a little bit different because of where our people came from to get here and what our lives have brought to us. So, so I will, I, I'm not one of those people who will fuss if you say Appalachia or Appalachian, but I will ask where you're from because chances are you're from maybe Pennsylvania or in New York, someplace above here and they pronounce it differently. And that's their right because they are Appalachian too. Yeah, so we we are still in Appalachia here. <laughs> our, our new farm is in the 
the northern Allegheny High. Oh, beautiful. We're still in central New York. Yeah, well, we, we found a place equidistant from each of our oh, mothers. Now, see, <laughs> yeah. that was both uh, politically smart um, and geographically <laughs> smart. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's funny about thinking about Appalachia as a kind of a, a, a whole because when I hear different mountains within the region, mountain sets within the region, this chill goes up my spine. So when you said Allegheny, it was like, oh yeah, the Alleghenies. Or um, <laughs> the, when I drive through the Cumberland Gap, there's just something about the word oh, yeah. of it that really it zooms in on me and, um, and wraps itself around my heart somehow. And of course, I'm here. I'm here so in the Smoky it? Mountains on the Blue Ridge, and um, mm. and that. See, I got a little chill thinking about just saying those words too. So it feels it feels yeah. like if you are of this place, whatever your place is, that the the mycelium layer of our spirit beings connects all the way across. Mm, absolutely. Well, what was it like there uh, growing up as a kid? I was um, I was uh, blissfully left alone. Now I think if Child Protective Services was around then the way it is now, someone would have checked in. But um, my parents were fairly, I guess the word I will use is neglectful, but which meant that I got to go out and be outside and do whatever I wanted to do. And I was fortunate because nothing. I was never in a place where there was big danger, nothing bad happened to me. The, the worst thing I can remember happening when I was a kid is that we were uh, on an old logging road and I had on plastic boots. Yeah, go explain that. And I stepped on a nail and it went through the boot and all the way through my foot. So the complicated part was, of course it hurt like anything, was to get the nail out and the boot off and then walk home because I was a couple of miles from home. But I was with a friend and we just kind of joked and laughed and left a trail of blood. So that was probably, <laughs> it was probably the most dangerous thing that ever happened that we, we ran from bulls in pastures and when we, uh, we saw very large snakes and bears and stuff like that. But wow. it made me be at home in the outside and at home kind of yeah. in the wild outside. Yeah, so I know for me, uh, I was homeschooled in, in the Western Pennsylvania, and I was allowed to go out into the forest all the time, and that has definitely affected who I am now, um, you know, and I was just wondering how, how is that, that uh, connection to nature being allowed to go out and be in, in the woods or in the pastures, how has that affected who you are now? Oh, in every possible way, I think, because for one thing, it, it doesn't scare me. So if, um, if we go to a place to camp um, and it's, you know, it has a flush toilet and a shower and all that stuff, I'm, it, it's like being at home. You know, camping should be, I think, should be rougher. You should have to like dig a little latrine and <laughs> cook over fire <laughs> like that. But yeah, so yeah. I go to these festivals and there's porta potties and showers and hundreds of people. And so it just, the people frankly are more disturbing than just being out on the land. <laughs> but 
but yeah, I, I find myself comfortable and, and probably more important for me is I find myself curious about the kinds of land that I don't know. Like I've, I've oh, experienced yeah. prairie for the first time. And that was not, that was not a kind of ecosystem that I knew much about. And as soon as I put my feet on the land that was prairie, it felt different. It felt yeah. newer and it felt more kind of struggling and, and it would just felt very, very different to me than being here. I mean, you know, these are some of the oldest mountains in the world. So things are pretty mm -hmm. settled. The energy yeah. is deep and low and, and kind of a basso profundo energy. Uh -huh. um, and that I love going to these places. The, the first time I drove over the Mississippi river, it was, it was uh, life altering. It's just extraordinary. And you all know how much I love Pittsburgh. And the reason I love it, one of the big reasons is the, is the, those rivers coming together. Because yeah. yeah. it's just the power there and, um, well, and the magic. It's just, it's just yeah. amazing to me. Yeah, I, I know for me, traveling with the band, that, well, that's one of my favorite things is to go into these different ecosystems like the high desert in Arizona or the redwoods in California. But so we met you first at a uh, like a pagan festival in southern Ohio, um, and you were teaching class in folk magic. And that really, that was probably one of the most interesting classes that I took there, um, probably the most interesting class I took there. And I'd like to know, uh, and our listeners to know, like, what is Appalachian folk magic? And uh, what is, what is magic? <laughs> <For you. laughs> oh, gosh, I, I love to talk about this. So you stop me when I, when there needs to be another question. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> so Appalachian folk magic, the way I practice it, it comes down through families. So I guess the first thing I need to say is the kind of folk magic I practice is, is peculiar to the place that I am from. So that when I talk to people who are from West Virginia and Kentucky, Pennsylvania, New York, their folk magic feels a little bit different than mine. I mean, there's some basic pieces of it that are the same, but it, it can vary literally from county to county and from cove to cove, because it it passes down through families. So I was lucky the the cove I grew up in, and then the holler next door to it on the other side of the ridge of the mountain, they were all my extended family. So we all kind of did the same thing. And it's it's mostly about healing, and it's mostly about using available materials. So it's not, it's not high magic. It's not ceremonial in any way. And it's also not really religious. And I get in trouble for that all the time. But the, the folk magic I practice comes down through a primarily Protestant Christian filter. And there's a sense from those, those practitioners and some of the older practitioners that they are simply vessels for the divine will to move through which gives folk magic practitioners here a kind of humility about what it is they do, because it's not about their skills and it's not about their knowledge. It's about opening up and being a channel 
for this the Holy Spirit to, to move through. Well, I, I grew up unchurched. So I, I, the sense I had of all of this was that it was really not so much about a particular spirit with a title and a name and a book, but it was about opening yourself up to the energy of the land around you and to use that energy for uh, primarily for healing, but it's also used for weather work. And I guess you could stretch weather work and say that that's healing too. That's about healing the land and the crop and being able to survive the winter. Um, but it, it was, it, it is and was primarily doctoring for people who couldn't afford to or didn't have access to more um, modern medical practitioners. And what we've discovered because Appalachia has, you know, it is very, very dense as a bioregion with lots of diversity that we are coming back now to some of those older modalities, um, especially in herbalism. And we're looking at plants in ways that our great grand, grand ancestors looked at them as a, as a pharmacopoeia, as a way to, to cure and to heal and to bring the, the goodness of tended soil and, and earth in general into our bodies in ways that we that a lot of us have lost the knack for. So it has a lot of influences. Um, the particular area I'm in, the big influences are uh, are from the British Isles. There are a lot of people here who are Scots-Irish. There's an influence, a big influence of the Pennsylvania Dutch, the Dutch people. And then the third big influence, of course, is the Cherokee and the native influence. We have less of the, the low country um, enslaved African influence, just because there, and I'm not saying there were no enslaved people, there certainly were, but it wasn't, a, it wasn't a large enough group here to have a big influence on the folk magic and folk healing. Mm -hmm. um, so those are the three big influences and you can track some of it back and you know, and you can figure out where it came from, but some of it is so universal like the use of eggs in healing is just universal. Almost everyone, everyone I've ever talked to about it has egg magic as a way of clearing your auric field mm -hmm. and absorbing the stuff that needs to leave your body. It just, the only difference is the kind of eggs you use depending on what culture you come from. Yeah. So that's the, that's your 15 cent tour of Appalachian folk magic. Obviously, I've written I've written three books about it, so yeah. um, there's there's lots of um, there's lots of reference material now about it. There wasn't when I wrote my first book. There were just a handful of sort of ethnographic studies, um, but now it's popular folk magic, so it's a hot commodity. Yeah. So you hear a lot more about it than you used to. Well, I think I think that's probably good. But what what is your definition of magic? Oh, using available energy to change the universe around you through your intention and will. Okay. And where does the energy come from for magic? <laughs> oh, that is a class I love to teach. Because, <laughs> because beginning, 
magic workers and that's the phrase I'll use because a lot of people call themselves different things. I call myself a witch, but some people are not comfortable with that. Mm -hmm. So however you are leveraging that energy magically, call yourself that. But there is um, <laughs> what we tend to do when we first start doing magic is we clench everything up. Like we make little tiny fists and we dig our feet into the dirt and we, we tighten everything up. I call that sphincter magic. Mm -hmm. you just, oh, and you're like, I am doing magic now. And of course, that's exactly the opposite of the way you really need to do magic. Uh -huh. Because just as these Protestants believe that you open yourself up as a vessel, you let the energy flow through, that's how you, that's the easiest and best way, in my opinion, to do magic. So the energy I used primarily is earth energy. So I pull through the bottom of my feet. I pull energy of the planet up into my body. Mm. From the top of my head, I'll pull down what I call celestial energies. It's primarily lunar energy. And then I've developed some techniques for free radical energy. So, for instance, I live in a very gentrified neighborhood now. And there are, um, there are police sirens and emergency vehicles all the time. Well, that's a kind of energy that you can pull in to the center of your body and utilize. It's free energy. So I don't have to dig it out of the planet or pull it down. I just sort of open up my center and I take that in and then I immediately use it because it's not necessarily an energy I want to keep inside my body for very long. But, um, but the earth always needs healing. So if you pull that wild fire truck sound energy into your body and immediately shove it down into the planet, then you bring more energy to bear for the next time you have work to do. So that's, that's a really interesting way to use, to use energy. It seems also like you might want to have some uh, protections in place when you're using free radical energy. Uh, what, what do you do like as a daily, like, do you do daily banishings or, or cleansings? Like how, how do you protect yourself? Well, I, I've been doing this a long time and I tend to not do banishings or cleansings or any of that until I feel the need for it. And that, I mean, it's, it's like build up on something. So I'm going to wait till it builds up a little bit and then, and then take the Brillo pad and, and scrape it off. So I don't do anything like that daily, but what I do daily is grounding. So I have a, a swift grounding protocol. In fact, as soon as I said the word grounding, I grounded. And, and the grounding then connects me up with the planet, which, which is good in a lot of ways, but it also can be really hard because right now the planet is in a lot of stress and turmoil. And so if you are grounding yourself into that, then you're going to be feeling that. And I'm, I don't know how much anybody's into astrology, but I'm a Pisces double Scorpio. So I pretty much feel everything. And, and that deep grounding, I, I feel what's happening in California and I feel what's happening in New England. And I feel, I feel that. So when that happens, I may choose to cut the grounding and not be grounded so I don't feel it. Or I may choose to let that rush right through my body and, and discern from the rushing through my body if there's anything I can do about it 
or if I can just stand as witness to what's going on. And sometimes that's all we can do, really. I mean, there's not much any of us can do about what's happening on the West Coast with the fires, but we can stand as witness to that. And then we can also open up the idea that the natural world has a limited number of ways that it cleans itself. And one of those ways is fire. And so what's happening there is devastating for the humans and, and for the animals. It's a devastating event, but we all know just as Mount St. Hel Helens was a devastating event, that the earth rebuilds itself and it'll be different. And we may be sad that we're missing that beautiful grove that we used to hang out in. But when you begin to look at the earth in geologic time, you understand that some things are simply necessary. So that thing happening clears the way for new growth. And that's the way forest ecosystems have always been, is that they, they have these devastating fires that, that terrify humans and kill trees and kill underbrush and kill animals. But what happens after that is a clean slate and the soil repairs itself and new trees come and there's a different canopy and life moves on. There, that's your sermon for today. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's very pertinent. Yeah, are there any other um, practical magic things that, you know, some of our listeners might benefit from um, regarding blessings or luck or... Oh, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, I want to talk about two things, and one of them is sh the shielding that I think we were getting to. Oh, right, um, yeah. Is that sometimes you don't you you just can't feel all that you need that you are feeling, and you need to put up some kind of shielding, and that there's lots of different protocols for that. But basically, you're in you're encircling yourself in a bubble of energy. Nothing comes in, nothing goes out, so you don't feel any of the energies outside the bubble. You are only sitting in that energetic bubble with yourself and your own energy. And sometimes we are feeling just fractured and, and off balance and crazy. And you put up the shields all the way around you and you can go, oh, oh, I did drink an entire pot of black tea for <laughs> an hour. It's me. It's just totally me. Or I didn't sleep last night. So that's why I feel the way I feel. But sometimes it's that there's just too much to take in and you need to make yourself a safe space yeah. so that you can have a nice deep breath. And, and breathing is one of the most important things, uh, intentional deep breathing, because we tend to do this shallow, just taking in as barely as much as our bodies can use breathing. And what that does is stress us out physically because your lungs go, wait, wait, get, get something to the bottom here. Take a nice deep, deep, deep breath. We talk about deep grounding breaths, but there, there are days that I go through a whole day and it's like three o'clock in the afternoon. And I think, have I taken a breath all day? Right. I, I don't think I, I really have. So breathing, grounding are really important. Practicing is super important. So find those things that you need. I live in a tourist town. So if I want to go downtown with my vehicle and I need a place to park, I, I better have a parking spell that works. Mm -hmm. So get one of those if that's something you need. We, 
we live in this kind of funny fantasy world about magic where we want to do big things. You know, we want to conjure demons or we want to speak to the dead or, you know, we want to do these huge, huge, big things that, that to be honest, probably most of us are never going to be able to do when simple practical magics will enhance your entire day and you will, you'll have, it just makes things easier. It's like having a tool for a particular job. Yes, you can dig the potatoes out with your hands. You can. But if you've got, <laughs> if you've got a nice spade, that's going to make your life a whole lot easier. So if you begin to think of magic as a tool, it really will. It just makes things easier for you. Yeah, what are some of the tools of magic? Well, um, that depends on what it is you want to do. So if I want to grow maximum potatoes, mm-hmm. we'll, go, we'll go to potatoes. I still have a tiny little place of potatoes I need to dig, by the way. So I may, <laughs> this may be inspire me to go out and finish digging the potatoes. If you want to do, you want to have maximum yield on potatoes, you're going to do all the stuff like checking the pH and making sure the soil is exactly the loamy quality that potatoes like, but isn't so soggy that they're going to rot. You know, you do all that kind of standard farmer stuff of knowing your, um, your ecosystem and knowing what potatoes need to prosper. And in addition to that, especially, and this is, um, this is Appalachian, but I'm sure it's, it goes way farther than that. You're going to look at what we know has influence on the growth of plants. And one of those things is the moon. So if I'm planting a plant that I want to do, especially well below ground, I'm gonna plant that in a waning moon in what we call the dark of the moon. And if I'm planting sunflowers, I'm gonna plant them in the light of the moon in a waxing moon. And I might then add in a talisman of some kind like I cut all my eyes out of the potatoes to get ready to plant them with a particular knife. And it's a knife that my great-grandmother had, my Irish great-grandmother. So I load all of that kind of symbolism onto it. And I, and I magic these potatoes to do really well. You can do all of that. You can, you can, can do all that sort of stuff. But the other thing that happened to me this year we have an old, um, I think it was a rabbit hutch that somebody threw out that we grow our potatoes in. Well, the potatoes looked great. The plants were beautiful and healthy. But when I went to dig that particular bunch of potatoes, something had gotten in from underneath and it stolen all of my potatoes, all of them. So I got no potatoes at all. So the um, other thing you have to remember about nature is that we don't control it. We can do all the pieces that we know how to do, but we don't control it. Absolutely. So. Um, I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about candle magic specifically, um, especially what do you do with a rue candle? You saw one of your videos. There. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm known as the elderberry evangelist because I'm always talking about elderberry tincture and 
and how fun it yeah. is to grow elderberries. But I'm also really known for for rue. And mm. I discovered rue candles many years ago um, in uh, Botanica in Silver Spring, Maryland. I was with a um, a witch friend, and she she said, "I got to stop here and pick up some stuff. I got to get. I'm out of rue." Candle, I got to get one of those, and I was like, "Blue candle? What are you talking about?" <laughs> and and it was, it's called, it was called the amazing rue candle, and it's a big thing in voodoo and hoodoo apparently, and also in traditional um, south of the border sort of magic. I'm not sure what culture it comes out of, but you find them in botanicas. So, and they have this really strong perfumey scent which I don't love. But the thing about rue is it's like rocket fuel for any working you're doing. So if, if you know somebody who's having a baby and you want the labor to be what it needs to be and the birth to be easy and beautiful and mom and child to be nice and healthy, then you burn a rue candle for that. Um, anytime somebody contacts me and they're having whatever their difficulty is, I will light a rue candle for them because I know it will work with whatever my intention or their intention is for the situation and just kind of boost everything up. So I do, I do that kind of candle magic. And then I also make specific oils that I dress candles with. Um, it's funny, I don't, I don't think of myself as a person who does a lot of candle magic, but if I actually look at what my practice is, I do a lot of candle magic. <laughs> I just, I just don't do it in that kind of, I don't know, like that movie, the craft. I don't do it that way. Yeah. I just, I just sort of light a candle and, um, and I've just, I'm, I'm making a whole bunch of different kinds of oils from plants in the region. And I do, um, well, I've done obviously rue and I do vervain and mugwort, which are two really good popular oils, mm. but I just laid down some black walnut oil and I'm oh, yeah. interested to see what that's going to do. Cool. And I did some woad oil starting oh. last year because I grow a patch of woad. That I, don't I don't use it for dying. I just like it. Yeah. Um, and the woad oil is really good and it's blue. It's pretty. Cool. Yeah, so um, tell us what other herbs you have in your garden. Um, what are you most excited about growing this year? Ooh, that, that may take us a while. <laughs> <laughs> I, will, I will tell you about um, what I want to put in the farm. How about we go there first? Yeah, yeah. So I've got um, a small place south of here that my grandmother bought in the 60s and that I inherited, and it's... Um, I'm turning it into, mm, that sounds, I don't like the way I said that. It, it is growing into a forest farm. And in it, I am going to grow all of the things that I currently um, forage now. So I'm going to grow a big patch of mugwort. I'm going to grow some rabbit tobacco, which in, in this region is Pseudonephalium obtusifolium. Um, I'm going to grow a golden seal, and Solomon seal, golden root and Solomon seal and blood root and some other plants that I'm not going to name. Yeah. <laughs> Insane, obviously. <laughs> yeah. I'm so, I'm such a bug about that because we over harvest it all the oh, time. Yeah. And I just, 
the first book I wrote about Appalachian folkways, I didn't mention it at all. And a good friend of mine uh, said, let's have coffee. And I said, okay. And he said, I just want to know why you didn't mention sang. And I said, well, I didn't mention sang because people shouldn't be harvesting it. Nobody should. Nobody should. Because it, it's, a, it's a wonderful herb and it does a lot of really amazing things. But there are other plants that do similar stuff. So we don't need to strip that one to extinction. Yeah, but we should be planting it if we can. Yes, yes. And it's tricky to grow. Yeah. yeah. Well, you, just, you need the right spot for it. But. Yep. Yeah, that's that. You know, if you don't have like maples or, or a good hardwood forest, then you know you can't grow one in a year. No. Mm -mm. Well, and it it's a it's the kind of crop that's going to take a few years to get, yeah. so that you can use it. So, anyways, so those are the plants I'm doing in the woods. I've already put in ramps, Great. and uh, what we call yellow root, and I've got uh, Solomon's seal and blood root here at this property in town that will transfer down there this fall. Um, and then in my garden here, I've got tons of weird stuff. I mean, I grow Datura, which oh, I yeah. love. And I grow um, our particular mountain mint here, whose uh -huh. name I can't remember. It's a Pycnanthemum virginianum, mm -hmm. maybe, something like that. Mm. Um, and skull cap. Yeah. I, I grow a lot of culinary herbs, lots of rosemary. Uh, I've got a, I've got this big stinky sage plant, and I should send you some of that. Yeah. Tell me what it is. It, it's not, it's not the culinary sage that I'm used to. It's a different kind that has an almost round leaf, and it's beautiful and gray. But mm. if you brush against it, it smells like dirty armpits. Oh. Dirty yeah. sweaty armpits. That's fun. It's really awful. <laughs> but it's a beautiful plant so I can't I just can't dig it up it's so pretty yeah <laughs> Wonderful. so what, what's so great about about uh, elderberries <laughs> oh but I'm in this kind of weird elderberry place right now because of COVID uh-huh yeah so I am the person who for many years has just said whatever was wrong with somebody I go okay unless you're allergic to it try some elderberry tincture I don't care what it is. Yeah. So I've known people who've treated mononucleosis with elderberry tincture, obviously cold, flu, all those kind of things. Elderberry tincture. You got a urinary tract infection, try some elderberry tincture. I'm just, I'm crazy about elderberry tincture. But as soon as we started really looking at COVID and what this SARS-CoV-19 is, there were a whole lot of things that came out that contraindicated elderberry. And so I have been super careful about that. And now there is, and AC, you know this really well, that this is just raging controversy right now about, yes, of course you can use elderberry. What are you nuts? Do you know what'll happen if you use elderberry? Right. So I am just being, I'm always going to err on the side of safety. Yeah. And I'm looking symptomatically at what happens with SARS-CoV-19. And I'm encouraging people to do things like understand what a mustard plaster does. That's old school Appalachian stuff to look at fire cider, which oh. has lots and lots of good stuff in it. And I have, I have really backed off though. Of course I've tinctured two damn gallons of the stuff already. Um, 
I really backed off elderberry tincture for now just because of that. But it does, you know, I just think it's a, it's a wonder and a marvel, but maybe not for this. Yeah. So um, I'd, I'd be interested because it seems like you're doing some permaculture work there. And you said you have a, a new book coming out next year on permaculture and animism. Um, and I think that'd be I good do. to talk about. It is a book I've been wanting to write for like a decade. And it's, I mean, obviously it's based on my own experience, but also in the kind of herbal world that I also travel in because I, I do a lot of sort of pagan festivals and, but I, I also have this herbal thing cause I'm not at all a medicinal herbalist. I'm a magical herbalist, but I travel in those circles too. And I've been really fortunate to teach several times at the organic growers school festivals here in um, Western North Carolina. Um, what was the question? <laughs> so you've got this book coming out about the book. Yes, the book. Um, yeah. What is animism? So uh, animism is the belief that everything is in soul, everything. And not just, yeah, trees have souls and dogs have souls and all this stuff, but like my mug of tea right here has a soul. And, and once you live in a world where everything is in soul, then then you begin to re-enchant everything. And it's more than just the, you know, we've been talking for years about, oh, I'm connected. It's a connection. We are all connected, blah, blah, blah. Well, it's more than that. It is this acknowledged kinship with all that is. And not only does it move through space, it also moves through time because I really believe we, we understand neither time nor space and how they move. We just don't. We have this thing we slap on it, like clocks. I can look at my clock and see what time it is, but that does that's not time. And I can work in the soil and get my fingers nice and dirty, but that's not space either. So it's, it's all crazy. I wish I could be 10 years old and become a theoretical physicist stuff. But the, so the, the book is tentatively called The Seasons of a Magical Life. And it takes the wheel of the year, which is the cycle of the agricultural year on the little farm, the little forest farm. And it talks about the things you plant and the things you do to tend to the land, to be a, a good and tender person on the land. And it also talks about ways we can deepen our spiritual practice through animistic practices and also through reconstructing what time looks like. So I, I propose that instead of saying that your day starts with sun up, that you say your day starts when the sun goes down. So you begin your day in this super relaxed way as you have a, the final meal and you tidy up and then you go to bed. So you begin the day in this beautiful restful way. And then when you wake up, you are able to engage in the time and space of a day in a very different way. Um, and it's been, it has been beautiful. It was beautiful for me to be able to write the book while, while being this enforced uh, time on the land because I was writing about what I was doing. And that was really, that was really extraordinary. And I was, I was glad finally to get a book contract for it. I was at a, a festival called Serious Rising last year. 
and I, I proposed a class called Happy Homesteading 101, Basic Beginning Permaculture for Pagans. Well, what happened was that a couple of people who had a dream of living on the land came. Everybody else were hardcore permaculture people. So we just sat there in the circle talking about all the possibilities and how it is this is the time. The space has opened up for us to really deeply engage in this in ways that 20 years ago people didn't even dream we'd be able to do. Yeah. That we can talk about permaculture in India, in Africa. We can talk about what's happening in permaculture in Detroit or in Alaska or Siberia. And we are exchanging ideas now that we never would have been able to do before. So it's an extraordinary time for permaculture. And of course the animism piece always ties in for me because of the spiritual piece that I want to feel. I want to feel what's happening. I'm looking out the window at my big old oak tree and feel what's happening with the oak, which is very happy this year, I have to say, um, and as I move through the world. Yeah. Could you speak a little bit to the land spirits and um, how to get in touch with them and <laughs> yeah, yes. make, friends. make friends with them? The yeah, people, in this the animus, an animus yes. paradigm, like, right. there's spirits everywhere, right? So yeah. Yes, exactly. And so there are, in the, in the spirit world, as I encounter it, and some people, as they say, your mileage may vary, as I encounter it, of course, there are the beings that used to be human that we call ghosts or ancestors or whatever. They're, some of them are there and they often contact us because they want us to do something usually. But um, the spirits that I most engage with most often are the land spirits, the, what was called in some of the Findhorn writing, the Davic spirits. And I'm going to give you an example. So in 2013, I did a month of field research in Britain and I planted my spring garden. I got all the brassicas in and the peas and all onions and all that stuff. And then I basically went away for a month and I knew that two things would happen. Either there would be no rain and sometimes we have springs with no rain and everything would die or it would be puny and pathetic or we would have a lovely wet spring and everything would be gorgeous. But I fed the land spirits before I left and I said, would you just look after things? I'd really appreciate it. Well, I came back a month later and it had not been a particularly wet spring, but enough, obviously. And as I opened the gate and stepped into the garden, we have to have a fence and a gate because we have groundhogs the size of bears here. <laughs> and I walked in and, and it was extraordinary. I mean, the broccoli was the size of basketballs, bigger than that. The cabbages were huge. The, the pea vines were six, eight feet tall. It was, it was, it was extraordinary. Wow. And I immediately felt around me at my feet. And this is, it's not at all disrespectful, but it will give you an idea how it felt. It felt like it. A, a herd of invisible dachshunds just sort of jostling me down along ankle level up to mid-calf. Oh, just like, look and, what we did over here. Look over yeah, here. exactly. And the feeling was, hey, you're back. Doesn't it look great? Aww. And, and I, was, I was so grateful. And, and here's where I vary from a lot of people. Um, 
some people, our, our received wisdom about land spirits is that you give them butter and fresh bread and cream. Well, my experience has been exactly the opposite, is they like the trashiest candy you can find. They don't want anything that feels natural because that's where they live. If you're going to give them a treat and really kind of get them on side, you need to give them something that they can't just go somewhere and pick up. So I tell people to start with Skittles and Swedish fish. But what, what I find they really love are any of those terrible gummy candies that you would not put in your mouth that have unnatural dyes and yeah. maybe they are sweet and also sour and they just love that crap. Mm -hmm. They love it. Mm -hmm. And they like broken bits of glass and shiny things, oh, little bits okay. of aluminum foil. So they, in a sense, they're like children in that way. They like something bright and big tasting. Mm -hmm. So I recommend that to people all the time. And sometimes they get this kind of look on their faces like, oh, no, no, my land spirits wouldn't like that. My land spirits are obviously more sophisticated than yours. And I just think, I'm telling you, buddy, give them some Skittles. They're going to love the Skittles. <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny. So that seems like a, a really uh, very good relationship with your land spirits. Um, but there, like, there's a difference between maybe land spirits and the fae, but is there also a danger to working with land spirits or the fae? Oh, um, yeah. And... And I refer to those, and I feel them as physically and energetically larger than land spirits. I refer to them as the good neighbors. And that's just how, when I was growing up, you never talked about, you didn't say the word fae or fairy, certainly, or um, the she, you didn't use any of that language. So I refer to them as the good neighbors, and they are intensely old, and, um, and, they, and they almost never have our best interest at heart. They live, they live in a different, probably, dimension. Oh, God, I really will sound crazy now. But they live in different realms than we inhabit. Again, we don't understand time and space, so I can't really explain it. But I can tell you this, that they have information that we need to do what it is we do with permaculture and all of that. And they are so angry with us, for the most part, because of what our species has done to the planet. Intensely angry. So to approach them is to, is, to, is to go into basically enemy territory, but it, it is an enemy that, that requires us to love and respect them rather than to hate and fear them. And so I, I, I teach classes at a couple of different places about how that engagement needs to happen. And no, you can't put on big fairy wings and Spock ears and engage those spirits because they they will eat the soul right out of you. Um, and this may not be the um, the podcast to talk about the depth of that kind of work, but I will tell you this: that if you have if you have a solid and acknowledged kinship with your land spirits, and you respect them and they respect you, so if you have that good solid relationship and you get in trouble in those other realms, your land spirits will come and get you because they move easily through these different planes, these different plateaus, and they will, they will come and get you and, and get your ass out. So the other reason to engage deeply with those, 
I, I don't want to make them hierarchical, um, but those more familiar beings yeah. um, is that is that if you are called to engage with the good neighbors, and not everybody is called to that, and not everybody should do that, because it requires you to be a diplomat on an extraordinary scale, but they have information we need, and if people are comfortable walking over the borderlands and into the realms through either meditation or trance, then there's information that we can bring back to us that we can bring to bear on things like permaculture, things like uh, mycelium, the, the interactive uh, biological cultures that we are just now kind of uh, learning about. They have all that information and, and we, we can use that. And we can use that in ways to further the health of the planet. The fear of the good neighbors is that because we are users, that's our nature as, as a species, is that we will somehow, somehow find a way to use this information to profit us and to make the earth less healthy. And that's their big fear with us because they know us. Right. Yeah. So we're nearing the end of our time together today. Gosh. And I, I know it's, it's gone by, gone by so fast. Um, and, you know, speaking of the good neighbors who, and their lack of trust for us because of our actions, um, I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit about the times and about what power <laughs> time is a term that I, yeah, I, um, I've been having visions and um, dreams for a long time that we're living in the times where these huge top-down toxic systems that I call patriarchy, but certainly our hierarchical systems are imploding. And we see that every day. They're imploding. And then they're kind of recalibrating as they fall. So I think of it the way I think of the tarot card, the tower, and I've been reading cards for, I don't know, a thousand years. Um, so I've been, I've been calling that tower time, and I have a book about that called Earthworks. Um, and I think this is a time of great opportunity. Certainly with um, SARS-CoV-19, we are seeing how all these American cultural systems are interrelated so that we've been talking about what are we going to do about childcare? We've been talking about that since the sixties, but we haven't done a damn thing about it. So now suddenly all the mommies and daddies have got to go back to work. So what are we going to do with these children who can't go to school? Yeah. And we never fixed that 50 years ago when we should have fixed it. So we're seeing, we're seeing education, higher education, certainly, but all education crumbling because the systems simply don't work and they haven't worked for a long time. So the opportunity is for us to go in and to say, all right, this is obviously not working and we can see why it doesn't work and to fix those things one by one, bite by bite. Whether we will do that, of course, is still the question because we may very well not do that. We may just blow it off and go, well, everything's gonna get back to normal and it's all gonna be fine. But normal wasn't fine. And it, and it wasn't normal. So we have a huge opportunity now to fix some deeply broken things. There was a, an interview with a woman in probably near you, actually. She was in New York. And she was saying 
she was talking about early in the pandemic, uh, farmers were having to kill their livestock, like yeah. milk cows and all that, because the supply chain broke. So they weren't making little cartons of milk to feed little children. Mm-hmm. And, and she was saying, see, the problem is the, is the chain. The problem is how you get from here's the farm and these are the animals to here. And she said it used to be that every community that had livestock also had one or two or three abattoirs. So if you were gonna if you were gonna raise some animals for food, if you chose not to slaughter them, you sent them to a place which did it, and maybe not as humanely as we would like now, but we could change that. So we can make sure there are ways that animals are slaughtered and prepared for the table in a more humane way. And the same with with uh, vegetable crops. So if you are growing 5,000 acres of corn and you get all rained out, that's really bad. But if you're growing 100 acres and five of it's corn and then you've also got beans and cabbages and squash, then it changes everything. It changes the dynamic completely. Yeah, they say in permaculture, a diverse system is a resilient system. Yes. We really have to think in terms of resilience now. We talked about sustainability for years and nothing we do is sustainable, not on a large (laughs) scale. So we have to talk about resilience because if, if nothing else, we have discovered in this series of slashing calamities that the, the first responders in any disaster are the people who also experience the disaster. And once you can rethink that way, and you're not thinking, oh, no, we're the victims. Somebody's going to come help us because we're the victims. If you can think, okay, I'm on the ground, and I have these resources to hand, and I can get hold of my neighbor and see what resources they have to hand, then you start to work as a collective unit. Then you start to use, you know, we use the word hive mind on social media all the time, but you really start to work like a hive then. And that's that is not only resilient, that is ultimately going to be sustainable, but we're not there yet. Yeah. Well, it seems also during these times, which are obviously a lot of, I mean, like John Michael Greer calls it the long descent and there are a lot of other ways right, of at it. Right. But um, there certainly a lot of these big institutions are crumbling and you can see that now with, with the education and uh, the medical industry um, is just like blown out of control like how much is blown way out of proportion, the amount of money it takes to, to go to the hospital. And it seems yeah. as, as these are, are going to be crumbling, you know, a knowledge of how to use herbs um, and heal magically and, and with herbs and with other alternative ways are going to be very important. So, and, and how to teach other people how to do that on a local scale. So it seems, it seems to me like these, these, uh, these practical workings are really going to be important in the in the near future so you know should start start practicing now (laughs) yeah i i refer to those in in my book as circles on the ground that that we work microcosmically that we grieve globally and we work locally yeah that makes a lot of sense but we have to have the systems in place now we can't wait for everything to collapse because what happens to us historically is that we reestablish the tower and we put somebody on top. We just, we've done it again and again and again. Yeah, uh, so true. Well, Lauren, thank you so much for 
talking with us today. And I'm, um, I'm wondering if you could tell listeners what your new books are titled and where to find them and maybe tell people about what your website is. We'll, we'll put it in the show notes as well, but. Oh um, yeah, sure. Um, you can find me. Um, I'm on social media, uh, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter occasionally. Not so much Twitter makes me a little crazy. My website is myvillagewitch.com, and you can send me email there at info at myvillagewitch.com. My books, I always uh, request and suggest that people go to their local indie bookstore if they have one and order them if they don't have the books in stock. I have two books on Appalachian folk magic, Staubs and Ditchwater, and Asphidity and Madstones. I have a book on uh, loving your body to good health called Embracing Willendorf. Uh, Earthworks is the one who came out last year. In February, I have a book called Roots, Branches, and Spirits, Appalachian Folkways and Witchery. That's February from uh, Llewellyn. Then about this time next year is the uh, Animism and Permaculture book from Red Wheel Wiser. You can get the first four through my website. Just go to the Village Shop. And then um, I don't know how the others will be available. You can pre-order the Llewellyn one now, the Roots, Branches, and Spirits. Um, so go to your local indie if you have one and have them lay lay one aside for you when they come in. Great. Okay. Uh, it's so good to talk to you, too. I miss you both so much, but I'm so gratified to see you happy and working at what you love. Thank you. Thanks, Byron. It's, good. Yeah, it's really good talking with you, too. Yep. Glad you're doing, you're doing well out down there in North Carolina. You're on your bird. You bet. All the beans, all the time. <laughs> love y'all. Talk to you soon. Bye.